Be good. <laughs> Hello there, listener. Thanks for tuning in to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. This is Andrew with my wife Tiffany and our little dog Pele. We are traveling from Alaska down to Argentina. We are currently in Mexico City, and I'm in a parking lot that is incredibly loud. We're in the flight path of the Mexico City Airport. And you can probably hear that plane going over us right now. Not far from that is a military marching band that's been practicing since 7 a.m. It's not even close to 7 a.m. at this moment. So (laughs) sorry for the background noise, but I'm going to make this intro short and sweet. I have a great guest for you today. Her name is Susanna Rigg. She is a travel writer. She is a writer of fiction and fact and opinion. And she's just a cool person who was gracious enough to let us come over to her house and pamper her with questions. She's even going to maybe babysit Pele at some point. Uh, she's great, and I think you're really going to like her. We had a fantastic conversation. you got to check out her blog. Um, it's uh, Mexico Retold. You can find it on Instagram or just, or just Google that, Mexico Retold. At Mexico Retold is her social media handle. Uh, and her website, Susanna Rigg, Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A-H-R-I-G-G.com is her website. She's got, if you've got any interest in traveling in Mexico at all, she is the resource for where to go, what to do when you're there. It's great. Uh, so I'm going to shut up now because she's great and I like hearing from her and I think you will too. Uh, oh, well, actually, I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to tell you one more thing. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash monkey tooth podcast. And um, we put up lots of content there. You can tell us what you think about what we're doing. Uh, and you can even give us as little as $1 a month to show that this stuff that we're giving you is worth it. Okay, here comes another plane. I'm going to sign off. Enjoy this one from Susanna Rigg. Susanna, thank you so much for having us in your home. Thank you. And your home, in your actual living domicile, but in your home city, which you have adopted, Mexico City. Yeah. Do you say Ciudad de Mexico, or do you just say Mexico City? If I'm speaking in English, just Mexico City. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Or sometimes DF. DF. Because that's what everybody used to call it, and right. still do. So mm. I'll sometimes use that, but only if people will understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you, is your Spanish pretty good? Yeah, I'm fluent in You're Spanish. Fluent. Lucky devil. <laughs> Me, I, I still make mistakes. See, <laughs> I make mistakes in, in English. I, for instance, that mistake I just made, I said the word mistake incorrectly uh, in English all the time. Oh. So I can only imagine. <laughs> I didn't notice. In, uh, in Espanol. Mi Espanol is uh, muy limitado y muy malo. So we'll do this all in English. <laughs> okay. I I uh, mentioned to you briefly earlier that I found out about you through an internet search <laughs> looking for a poem about uh, Mole, which I did not find, by, by the way, I didn't find a specific poem about Mole, which is interesting because in Oaxaca, I mean, people practically pray to, mm-hmm. their, to their Mole and the process and the product and everything. There's but a great song about Mole by Leela Downs. Oh, I have yeah. to find it. Okay. <laughs> Leela Downs. Yeah. Noted. But you, uh, you popped up on the radar when searching for poems about Mole, which I thought was interesting that a British lady who <laughs> writes extensively about Mexico 
would pop into my field of consciousness while searching for something so obscure. And uh, I kind of became fascinated with who you are and what you do and why you do it. <laughs> so if, if you don't mind, maybe give me a little background on um, who are you and why are you in Mexico? Okay. Um, well, it all started actually when I was 10. Um, I learned about the Aztecs at school. And I think I was like the only year, I, the curriculum was only around for one year in the UK where the Aztecs or the Mexica, as I kind of now would call them, um, appeared on this curriculum and I was just fascinated. And I, I just remember thinking I need to go to that place. I know that place and I need to go there. Um, and so I basically was like, okay, for the rest of my like, young life thinking, okay, at some point I'm gonna go to Mexico. Eventually, it happened just after university. I was traveling in Latin America and actually had no plan to come to Mexico, but plans changed and I decided that I was going to do it. And when I arrived into Guadalajara, I arrived by, from LA to Guadalajara and I just felt like I was at home. I can't even really describe it and people maybe think it's strange, although I've met quite a lot of people who feel that way. <laughs> and I lived with a family in Guadalajara who basically referred to me as their like British daughter and um, made me feel completely at home. And having been traveling for a while, I arrived at their home and we, you know, we watched the Oscars with popcorn and I felt like I was just like part of their family. Um, and so this love just continued. And as I explored Mexico, I was here for four and a half months at that point. And I explored and I found out about the Maya and you know just being at archaeological sites and I was just kind of overwhelmed by the magic of this country um, and I went back to England and basically spent the next five and a half years trying to get back to Mexico um, I was studying for a master's and then for a PhD and I kept trying to make them revolve around Mexico somehow and eventually second year of my PhD I just spoke to my supervisors and I said you know I think I need to take some time off and go to Mexico and they were like, yeah, look, you keep talking about it. If you're not really fully into this, you need to go. Um, and took a year off, which ended up with me leaving the PhD and moving to Mexico. And I was planning to come for two years and I've been here for eight and a half. Um, yeah, lived six and a half in Oaxaca and now I've been two years in Mexico City. And um, I think two years like today or tomorrow, something oh, wow. like that. Yeah. And um I just love this country. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't even fully describe it, but it's a passion that um, has sustained. Mm -hmm. You know, my my sister actually described it to me. Like, she lives in Australia, and when I go there, she's like, "You miss Mexico like it's your partner, like like you're in a love affair with that country, <laughs> and you miss it in the same way." Wow. So um, yeah, that's the kind of the only way I can quite describe it. Let me back up. What what were you studying? Um, sociology of religion. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I actually wrote my master's thesis about the 2012 um, Maya calendar, and I was focusing on a particular group that were following it and kind of looking at them through a cult lens as to what they were going to do in 2012. And so in 2012, I went to Palenque and was there with all the people who were sort of waiting for the world to end or change or whatever it may be. And I actually met a guy from Iceland who sat on the temple at the end of the day as we were leaving and said, I don't know what I'm gonna do now. I bought a one-way ticket. Like, the world was supposed to end and it hasn't. And so I'm not sure what he's doing right now. I think of him often and wonder where he got to. I mean, do you ever wonder if maybe we got it, they got it right? Um, 
Yeah, but maybe the years are just off a little bit. Or if, like, <laughs> by end, we've just made a miscalculation as to the meaning of end. Because it has been a shit show. <laughs> it has, but I'm not sure if 2012 was, was quite the start of it. Yeah, Maybe yeah. if it was 2016, I might. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Four years off. Yeah. But yeah. no, yeah, I do. I do still think about it and, mm. and wonder about it. Sociology of religion. Mm-hmm. Fascinating thing. And with a special focus on Latin American or, or just... No, that was just me trying to find a way to involve Mexico in yeah. my life. My PhD was much less. It was about um, kind of turning 30 and how people redefined, how people define their life based on whether or not they were fitting with social norms of where they should be at that age. Hmm. And kind of, I was actually trying to redefine the word religion, which was very problematic with one of my supervisors. She didn't like that very much. So um, it was probably good I left. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, uh, have, just a side note, have you read uh, uh, Noah Yaval Harari, any of his work? No. Uh, I'm, I'm reading um, Homo Deus at the moment, and he talks quite a bit about religion. And it, part of our problem with talking about religion is that we don't have the terms correct. Ah, we, we link, maybe I was onto something. Yeah, I, think, I mean, linking <laughs> linking religion specifically with things supernatural and mm-hmm. beliefs and, and superstition is not entirely accurate. Because to someone who believes in a Quetzalcoatl, it's not something supernatural. He believes in something that's in in his or her mind completely natural. Mm-hmm. So it's not totally tethered to the supernatural. So in the same sense that maybe like. Uh, uh, the Aztecs, or what did you call them? The mix? The Mexica, Mexica. which is the name that they would use for themselves. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So the same way that the Mexica might, you know, be uh, fixated on Quetzalcoatl, uh, someone at Chase Manhattan is fixated on an index that's just as fictitious. You know, it's just a made-up yeah, thing. True. So the the comparison between religion and like sort of liberal ideas is uh, not entirely split down the middle mm-hmm, yeah. So yeah maybe i don't know what your uh, proposed definition of religion would have been do you have that ready still in your I, brain um, <laughs> no i'm not sure i do it was just basic it was kind of what you're saying around um ways of making meaning hmm. and those ways of making meaning didn't necessarily revolve around a god or a higher being But sometimes they involved superstition, sometimes they involved um, like more sociological norms around, because I was talking about this turning 30 and so like if you weren't married, had a house, had a baby, you know, all of those things. And so then how do you redefine the meaning in your life? And that to me, religion is about making meaning. Yes. it, it was it was getting into some murky waters certainly so i mean the moment you say the word religion you've you've at least got your ankles into the murkiest yeah. of waters because it's uh, a thing of i mean i'm starting to get an even better sense of why you're here it's more <laughs> than just your love of mexico because it's this is a poetic place yeah a deeply poetic place where i've found a lot of people to be very distracted <laughs> Like very oh, easily distracted, uh-huh. but I'm wondering are they are they just deeply contemplative towards some poetic thing, or are they just not paying attention, or did I just not notice how Americans don't pay attention because I'm not paying attention? That's uh, interesting. <laughs> I haven't noticed the distraction thing, but I do think that there's something that I love about Mexico: um, the ability to laugh, kind of in the face of <laughs> adversity. And I've actually written about that with um, on a piece about albures, which are like ways of speaking that's kind of like um, with double meanings. Mm. Um, 
And can you give me an example? Like a, a the the example that always comes straight to my head is like if a Mexican says to you, "Do you like chili?" It can mean "Do you like chili?" or it can actually mean something that looks like chili shaped. But, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and especially if that's used towards a, a woman and to a man, like, sure. and then that's happened to me, and then you know people laugh a lot about Boy, I, really, I need to one. start paying more attention because <laughs> I feel like I've been asked that question <laughs> I mean sometimes I it's know. very okay, it, do you actually like chilies? yeah sometimes it's right. a you know an innocent question right. but um, one of the people I interviewed for that subject was talking about how this way of joking around um, basically is how Mexicans deal with the difficulty of life and Mexico City no, the whole of Mexico. I mean, Mexico has 50% poverty rate. So there is a lot of difficulty in life. There's also some very complex things happening with violence in the country. Um, but I often just see people laughing. Like I have the taco stand just outside my my building and I hear them laughing every day. And it's often in that way that they're all like kind of taking the mickey out of each other yeah. and playing around, you know. Um, or they'll be singing along to songs or whatever. And I do think that's something that's part. But the distraction thing, I haven't noticed so much. I do think the Mexicans are able to, in my experience, multitask. Like you walk into a shop and if they're serving somebody, you just ask for what you want over the top. Right. And that that is like the ultimate sin in the UK. That's yeah. so rude. Yeah. And I actually did it when I was recently in Australia and uh, got in a bit of trouble because I'd forgotten that you can't do that. Right. So perhaps there's a thing around... The multitasking seems distracted, but they're not. I'm not sure. It's probably because I drive here so much. Ah, I don't I, drive. Yeah, I, we <laughs> uh, are always drive. Well, not always. We often drive, and mm. you know that's that's a great place to see people's distraction. Uh, yeah. But it, it's it's a mix of distraction and like what in a different context would seem like suicidal tendencies because <laughs> <laughs> there's just a madness in the driving that we've we've seen from Baja to. Oaxaca, to, I mean, it's just been... They say that Mexico City are some of the best drivers because it's so crazy. They mm. have to be so good, you know. Yeah. Um, Ironically, this is the one place where we will not be driving very much. We're, <laughs> we're coming in and out and no driving yeah. in between. Hopefully. Well, I've lived here for eight and a half years and never driven. I do drive like outside of Mexico, but mm-hmm. one, it's on the other side of the road for me. Um, and two, yeah, I think in Mexico City, I don't need a car. No, no, it seems like a good place <laughs> walk to... walk everywhere. An excellent place to not be burdened with the ownership of yeah. something that could be stolen, crashed. You name exactly. It. Yeah. Okay, so sorry for taking a few half dozen tangents there. But, no, it's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm, the religion angle is very uh, interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated by religion. <laughs> uh, I'm a fully recovered Catholic, but I still I think about it quite often. Uh-huh. And like you said, meaning. The idea of meaning is very... Um, I mean, just that word alone is worth redefining, perhaps. Yeah. You know, to, um, but giving meaning to something in a place like this, where you can see la- literal layer upon layer of meaning that is just mm-hmm. gone with the people who believed in it. Mm-hmm. And it's just now like a display of, of past meaning. And then someone else built on top of that something that meant something else, and they borrowed and stole... And then finally the Catholics showed up and, and buried it and gave it their own meaning. Mm-hmm. In a modern city like this, and I definitely feel like Mexico City is a very modern city. Yeah. The exchange of meaning for power 
it seems like that transaction is pretty heavy here. Like the power, the agency, uh, like there was just a massive protest of women. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're sick, tired, and nervous of all the bullshit in this yeah. country that we're treated horribly. Uh, we want power. Mm-hmm. And, and like to give away like the meaning behind like, you know, the Catholic Church or whatever religion it is that you're subscribed to and saying, no, the rights of these individuals supersedes all of that yeah uh, you're in a fascinating place to be sort of surrounded by people challenging meaning and religion and power do you uh, yeah i mean i think it's interesting for me being british because we're not a very religious it's not a very religious country um and the u.s has a very different kind of religious landscape so i imagine that you maybe see things through a slightly different lens than perhaps I do as well. I see there's quite a distinction between church and state in Mexico because after the president Benito Juarez, um, I think it was Benito Juarez, separated church and state. Um, And so that's quite um, strong within the political sphere, although I think it does play out, but because I believe um, AMLO, the new president, is quite associated with evangelical groups, so that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. What's really interesting in terms of what you just said about the layers upon layers is that I was just interviewing an um, archaeologist who um, excavates the area around the um, centre. Yeah, it was amazing. It was like, I said to him, I was like, you're like my Madonna. You're like my celebrity, you know. And I actually interviewed the man who excavated El Templo Mayor, which again was just like a dream. And um, he, the um, Raúl Barrera, who's the architect, um, archaeologist um, excavating the centre in charge of that, he was explaining to me that what we see now in the centre is not that much different than what was there in the time of the Aztecs. So where the cathedral is, is where the temple to the Aztec gods would have been. Where the National Palace is, is where Moctezuma had his palace. The way the Zocalo is used is how it was used back in, in like, Aztec Mexica times. Um, even, he said, where there was a Aztec um, school, they decided to put a university. So that, actually, I was brought to tears when he was telling me that because the idea that actually so much is still being played out in exactly the same way um, as a city that was built almost 700 years ago is just incredible and and was built and destroyed and actively destroyed you yes, know like purpose. yeah and you know the the same people who were seeing their city was destroyed were being forced to rebuild it um for the spanish and so that idea that actually the rebuild followed much the same structure there was something kind of beautiful in that and like, you know, these, these layers and layers and layers of, of Mexican history that are still available for us to see.
It's just so, I love walking around the historic center. It's an ant farm. <laughs> we're in a weird ant farm. I had the same thought when we were in Cholula, uh-huh. staring at those ancient, because it's just, you've got these ancient uh, edifices and uh, bits and pieces of the pyramid and things, that, it, and then there's bits and pieces of the history scattered around that you can read either in Espanol or in English mm-hmm. that tell the same story, like, oh, this was a cultural trading center and people from such and such region came. And you can look around and see the exact same thing happening in this moment. Yeah. You know, like people come from the coast, people come from other you know places and, and are, are doing the same things that once happened yeah. in this place. And I'm thinking, you know, America is only a few hundred years old. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole experiment is not very old. I, mean, yeah. I look at like the pharaohs were around for 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. No one could have ever imagined 200 years into the... The, the reign of the pharaoh that, that they would ever not be pharaohs. Yeah. But, you know, 3,000 years later, it's finished. It's over. Yeah. You know? So we've, we've just begun. So, like, the, yeah. the idea of what will replace us kind of t- gets me every once in a while. Like, okay, how temporary is everything? Because I know, yeah. What's, is, how much of a layer is this? I mean, what's going to be built on top of the Starbucks? Mm-hmm. Or the 47 Starbucks that line the road we just walked down? <laughs> yeah. It's it's such a bizarre thing to get your head around, and we're in such like a vibrant like history isn't an abstract thing here. No, history, yeah. you're eating history in your taco. Uh-huh. It's just a representation of like Arabic food yeah. <laughs> and all these cultural influences and things that popped out of different parts of the world, and you're mm-hmm. you're enmeshed in it all the time. So I can I can yeah. definitely appreciate why. You came here. I, I kind of got that same sense when I was in Great Britain the first time I went. I was just going to say, I think it's actually similar in, in different countries as well, mm-hmm. because there are there are actually layers of history all over the world. Mm-hmm. I think, um, <clears throat> I think, excuse me, I think for me, I wasn't so interested in the UK. <laughs> right. um, that sounds terrible, but I think, I, you know, I was born there. It was just like, oh, yeah, I know this. Right. I've, I've met Mexicans who know far more about the UK than I do. And then Mexicans who are surprised how much I know about Mexico. Um, Because I've been to 26, 25 or 26 of the 32 states. I'm on my mission to go to all 32. And, you know, and it's so fascinating to me that I want to delve deeper into the language, into the food, into the history, you know, archaeologically, like dig deeper. You know, it's just it's fascinating have you got an opportunity to actually go on a dig no that would be amazing although I don't think I have the patience it is it's a lot of patience you need to do that kind of thing yeah you always get it's like um, you know in a sporting event at the end you see the highlight reel like oh okay that guy dunked on this guy there's a goal scored there the highlight reel when you see like an archaeological dig there's like stuff laid out on a blanket maybe a guy dusting a jawbone (laughs) yeah but in between all that, the amount of time where there's just like the most careful picking over of yeah. nothing and consideration. I can't no. imagine. Yeah. That's why my job is great because I get to kind of delve in, mm-hmm. but I don't have to kind of, I don't know, like I can, I can delve into all these different things. Like one day I'll be interviewing a linguist mm-hmm. about um, word, Mexican words or Spanish words and how they're used. And next day I'm interviewing an archaeologist and then the next day I'm interviewing a chef. And so I get to like delve into all these different things. Right. Um, but 
um, delve in and del- and out again, you know, and that yeah. keeps it fascinating. Totally. Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a great segue. You're good at being interviewed. <laughs> I, I want to talk about your work uh, in, in discovering um, what you're what you're up to. I mean, you're a travel writer. Yes. But you write about more than just travel. Yeah, I'm essentially I always find it a little bit hard to say exactly what I do because yeah I'm a travel writer but I also live in the country that I write about so I'm not a travel writer in the sense that many travel writers are you know they go to lots of different places all the time I travel a lot in Mexico but um, less so beyond Um, and yeah I I write a lot about culture I write a lot about um, history archaeology food etc um one of my favorite places to write for is bbc travel because their travel section is very cultural so it's like sort of deep dives um into different subjects and so that's always been really fascinating for me um and they do deep dives into language as well and for me language is just fascinating about what it says about our culture you know yes very much so Mm. speaking of language the the language specifically that you use like your voice as a writer I found interesting because depending on, because I've read your blog mm-hmm. and I've read some of the pieces that you've written for Condé Nast and mm-hmm. BBC and CNN and the amount of yourself that you're able to dial in and dial out, I find interesting. Mm. I, I, I like to write. I write a journal. I, I, I love to write, but I'm certainly not a writer. And, and being able to dial in how much of your story you want to tell is interesting to me. I'm not sure how that works. How do you pull that off? I mean, just I'm quite a private person, so for me, I've never been, I'd never loved like writing explicit, too explicit kind of essays that involve me too much. So I think that plays a role. Um, that's sort of changing a little bit, um, but still, I believe that really good travel writing doesn't actually involve the writer all that much. But the writer has to place themselves so that the reader knows the eyes in which they're they're looking at a piece or a place, you know. Um, one example is I wrote a piece about the um, going to the Lacandon jungle in Chiapas. And uh, it was really important to me that that wasn't about me. But my place in it was, it, it showed me in contrast to um, Danielle, the guy who I, who I was, um, who led me through the jungle, but also showed my similarities to him in terms of my humanity. Um, and so I was explaining, like, for me, navigating the, the tube, the metro system in London, is like for him navigating the jungle. It's just second nature. Um, and, like, that creates, like, a, a similarity, but a distinction. But it was really important to me that that piece isn't about me, you know, and none of it's about me. Sure. You know? But it, in many ways it is because I'm there writing it and I'm seeing it through my eyes yeah you're the camera yeah you're the you're the recorder and that's the cool thing about being in your position like you said you can dial into any number of uh professions or interests or or like a chef the Mm -hmm. restaurant uh, an archaeological site and and record it's not totally after the fact because life continues to unfold but you get these like perfect little snapshots of what has happened what is happening what they hope for for the future and you're out (laughs) which which I, I really like. <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, to make this about us now, <laughs> but, uh, that's sort of what we're doing. Like, mm-hmm. I think, I mean, Tiffany's wonderful in large doses. I, I'm best in small doses. <laughs> I, I, that's the best friends 
that I make are always in like, okay, good, we're friends. I'll see you later. Goodbye. But uh, <laughs> do you find that in, like, for instance, the guy in the jungle is mm-hmm. part of a 500-year-old culture that escaped the Spaniards and, and said, no, we're just going to live in the jungle, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me. Uh, did you find that, like, you feel like you might keep in touch with that person? Or is that just like a, it's like a professional relationship? Or how does that work for you? There's always a fine line. Um, I, we are still in touch. We're friends on Facebook. Oh, <laughs> and um, when I was writing that piece, because I actually went down to the jungle because I was researching my novel. My novel is set down there. Um, but I wanted to write this piece and I contacted him on Facebook and said, look, I want to write this. Is that okay? I really wanted his permission because I'd gone there in a different capacity. And it's really important to me that I, especially in situations where I'm dealing with somebody from an indigenous community, that he's comfortable with what I'm saying and doing. Um, At no point do I ever want to do unintentional harm. Um, And so I chatted with him on Facebook and he sent me a picture of him and his sons. And I was like, this is mad. There's one computer in, in that area of the jungle. There might be more now, I'm not sure. But, you know, and I'm just messaging him on Facebook while he's in the jungle. And I was, I was actually sat in a coffee shop in Oaxaca. And I was like, this is quite crazy how technology has allowed me to connect with him in this way. Um, I wouldn't go so far as saying we're friends. I'm not sure that now he would be like, oh, yeah, Susanna, I remember her. He might, he might do. They, they definitely thought my way of life was quite unusual um, because I was a sort of single woman and his wife has four children. Um, and they were they couldn't quite understand that I was away from my family and so on and I get that you know like it's just a whole different <laughs> way of being but um, but yeah so in terms of friends there's some people yeah that I've stayed in touch with and um, that I would consider friends or or acquaintances that I would you know definitely say hello to if I saw them in the street whatever but there is a fine line because you are going as an interviewer you know as a as a journalist essentially and so you have to be careful with those lines um, and also not to be too friendly because I want people to share with me what they're willing to share with the public, not just what they're willing to share with me. Um, and that's always, you know, tricky. Yeah. I, particularly, what was, what's the name of this piece that we're referencing right now? I can't um, remember the name. Was it for BBC? Yes. What's the name of it? 500... 500 years in the jungle. Yeah, 500 year jungle dwellers, I think uh, yeah, they call it. Yeah, 500 year jungle dwellers. So yeah. I think if anyone listening wants to hit pause right now and go read that <laughs> and come back, it's worth it because uh, this. I'm really glad that you brought this specific piece up because <laughs> uh, it was one of the things that I thought was interesting because you clearly, and especially now that you've told me about your uh, interest in religion generally, uh, oh, BBC Travel, Mexico's 500 year jungle dwellers. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tiffany. <laughs> Pull it up, Jamie. Um, the uh, the thing that I found interesting in that specific article it was like you're and now that I, I know a little bit more about you, <laughs> thinly veiled disappointment that he wasn't able to talk about his religion oh, very much. So not even thinly veiled. Yeah. Well, maybe it was thinly veiled in the article, but yeah, because yeah, my book is about the time when the missionaries arrived. Um, well, you just want to make people cry. And so I wanted to know what it was like before. And, yeah, he couldn't tell me. And that, yeah, is, is quite devastating to me on many levels. Yeah. Um, and, and was frustrating for him, too. 
you know, he said to me, I've asked my grandma so many times and she says it's sinful, she won't talk about it. And that, yeah, that makes me really sad. I won't wax lyrical now about my belief around missionaries, etc. And I have tried to be very... Um, uh, I've tried to portray my missionary characters in my book with an understanding of why they're there and not just as, like, the bad guys because, obviously, they, they don't believe they're doing something bad. They do believe they're doing something actually incredibly good. Um, it's just hard for me as somebody who loves those layers of, of um, culture to see that layer not exist. Yo me llamo Arcadio Hidalgo, soy de nación campesino, por eso en mi canto fino potro sobre el que cabalgo. Ay, quiero decirles algo en reventando este son, quiero decir con razón de justicia que padezco y que es lo que no merezco causa de la explotación. There's so much there mm-hmm. in what you just said. I mean, specifically, that that tendency to want to judge the mm-hmm. Spanish or the missionaries or any of it. But like like you said, when those layers of history, as you look back, there are no innocents. Mm-hmm. Do you know? I mean, like yes. everyone was replacing someone else. Mm-hmm. The Olmecs were replaced. The Toltecs were replaced, and not by like committee yes. <laughs> or a vote. Yeah. It was usually some horrible violence mm-hmm. and oppression, and just real estate and opportunity yeah. are the sad realities of it and you want to think like oh, I would never be that person but if you were alive 500 years ago you might well have been one of the missionaries it, it, there's just no it's it's hard to judge but you really mm-hmm. want to you and really I mean these missionaries to. were in the 1950s so this was yeah. this was recent oh, history God. that's right um, but, oh. but yes like yeah. there's still missionaries today and, mm-hmm. and I don't believe they're bad people I believe that they think that they're doing something inherently good and I've tried to talk to missionaries or children of missionary families who are no longer involved to like find out a little bit more about that you know um, because I do think that's important especially in a, um, a novel not to be too romantic about either <laughs> side and, and in reality there is no one that I've ever met who's like yeah I'm an I'm a bad person yeah <laughs> that just this doesn't exist <laughs> no one point. Everyone, I think bad is possible because we believe we're good. Mm-hmm, if we mm-hmm. believe we were bad, we might try to change it. Yeah. Do you know, like, we might have some, like, self-awareness, like, oh, this is pretty rotten. Yeah, absolutely. Be, there, there's certainly an extent to which people are aware of being an asshole or being, you know, uh, selfish or whatever. But if they really thought what they were doing was bad, like, this is specifically bad. I don't know that it would happen. No, I think we all create narratives, yeah. don't we, that tell us what we're doing is right. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find any sinful people willing to tell you the secrets of the ancient peoples? <laughs> no. No? No? No. No one would talk to you about uh, the old religion? No. I mean, to be honest, I didn't delve into it too much. Is there literature on it? Were you able to research? Yeah, there is. Okay. And actually, some of the best literature comes from the missionary. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and of his course. family who were, were down there. So that yeah. has been helpful. Um, and yes, there's um, anthropologists, you yeah. know. What's so. the name of the, the I'm going to, this is going to frustrate people to know in, there's a writer, I want to say it's Dennett, but um, he's an anthropologist who started as a missionary and he ended up in this place that has an entirely different language 
somewhere in uh, Central or South America. Oh, oh don't gosh. I? But he, ended, he went down there as a missionary. Uh, and uh, I, God, I, I promise you, I will look this up later and I'll put up a link to this uh, author that I'm not remembering the name of. But um, he ended up writing all these books about language because he became fascinated with their languages. And was wow. Saying, you know, like he started talking to them about Jesus. And they're like, oh, do you know Jesus? <laughs> like, no, I, I didn't know Jesus. Oh, did your father? No. Well, what about your grandfather? No, he didn't know him either. Then why are we talking about it? <laughs> Because like there's like just Who's a certain amount of past that was relevant, and everything else was just mm, before, and yeah. you don't know about it. You know, it's, it's interesting. So there's a lot of ways that the layers can get fuzzy. Uh huh. Could be cultural, could be replacement, could be any number yeah. of things. But very often, those missionaries who show up to educate are that last reporter. Uh huh. You know, they're that last person in there with the camera or with the. Yeah. Whatever. They just before they spoil the eggs, they have a taste. <laughs> I think part of you. the um, uh, what it means to be a missionary also within if you're going into quite an isolated community is to understand how that community ticks, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of conversion historically has been around um, finding similarities, ways that you create like. Okay, Quetzalcoatl is the creator god, so that's on a par with the Christian god. You know, things like that, or like, oh, okay, that, that god is associated with X, Y, Z. You know, I mean, Day of the Dead, the fact that it now falls on All Souls Day. Um, you know, that, that link, it's, I think it's gone through, you know, history. It's pretty malleable, that sort of thing. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the other day, like the number of cultures around the world who, one, think of the name for themselves, which I think it was the same with this, the 500-year-old culture was like the original humans or the human beings. or The true people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So many cultures have named themselves that. Mm. Like we are, I think, is it Navajo means that or one of the many, oh, many of those. possibly, yeah. Yeah, it means like the people, the human beings, everybody else is an asshole. That's <laughs> like, it's an old thing that mm-hmm. it just shows up in in cultures around the world i don't even know if it's necessarily everybody else is an asshole but if you're You're essentially (laughs) semi-isolated like and your beliefs are what your beliefs are you i I don't know right yeah Yeah. but there's that tendency and the tendency to sacrifice like that idea that we're all just kind of looking for answers Mm -hmm. like uh just i'll give you an example my dog uh had some weird little infection in his eyes Mm -hmm. and like I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what it was. Like, is it, is it cold? Does he have conjunctivitis? Has he got a tumor? Mm-hmm. Is he cursed by Quetzalcoatl? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my faith in medicine drove me to a veterinarian. And the veterinarian was this hilarious old man who just, uh, uh, it, he could have been anywhere. He could have not even gone to veterinary school for all I know. <laughs> but I was just so ready to believe that he knew what to do that he would have the right medicine, all the right suggestions. And he just told me to give him eggs. It's like, oh, you don't feed him eggs? Give him some eggs. You know, do you pet him enough? Do you wrestle with him? That's good. <laughs> like, it didn't get to medicine until like right I before it. I left. I was like, so do you have anything I can put in his eyes? Oh, yeah, here's some oh, shit. Thank you. <laughs> but I was just so desperate to believe and look for answers. Like, it, I, I'm, that is a very, very mild example of the same sort of tendency that caused people to throw children into cauldrons so that they could yeah. go ask the rain god to please bring rain. Well, yeah. You know, it's that same sort of, I don't know how this shit works. Can you please help me? 
sort of impulse absolutely we've always i think looked for some kind of higher um understanding as well about why things are as they are you know mm-hmm. and sometimes that all makes a lot more sense than some of the judo <laughs> catholic um judo christian yeah. religions you know yeah. Uh, Sometimes that, I'm not. I'm not going to go too far down no, that line. No, that's fine. We don't have to. Go, go, <laughs> many people critique religion in very eloquent terms. I'm not that great at it. But it's just. Yeah, I thought you were saying judo at first, like like the judo that we have to go through to make ourselves oh. believe the wrestling <laughs> well, and well. submission of, of <laughs> our thought. So back to your work. Sorry to keep going down this religious religious tunnel. Um, in your in your writing, when you're um, when you're out for a story. Mm-hmm. Are, are you seeing an end product? Okay, like I need to I need to go to this town and experience X Y Z to be able to report that back to BBC or whomever. Mm-hmm. Or do you just say, okay, I've got a vague idea of what I want to see, and whatever pops out of it is what I'll write about. Or do you have that sort of agency, or what's? Yeah, I think it, it really depends. There's sometimes when I've seen a story, like I've I've seen something and been like, well, that's really interesting. I want to write about that. And so then I pitch that to my editors and they say yes or no. And okay. if they say yes, I go for it. And then I look for the people to interview, etc. And then um, if it's, um, I'm, say I'm going to a place, mm-hmm. um, let's say, I don't know, Nayarit, I'll go there without the story in mind that's and great. just be like seeing what's there, you know, like, oh, okay, right, that's really interesting. Or, or oh, look, they do that festival. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, it got to the point last year where everything I did was work. It was, there was just like nothing that wasn't work. So if I was eating at a restaurant, I was, you know, taking photos and posting that on my Instagram or I was thinking, how can I involve this in a story or, um, okay, I'm only going to go and visit that place if I can find a story. And then I realized that I had to stop doing that because I had no life essentially you know like it was just like everything was work and it takes the joy out of it as well Mm. when you're just always trying to think oh should I try and talk to the chef now while I'm here at such and such a restaurant and actually no like I don't want to do that right Right. (laughs) so um it's very much now got a bit more balance to it and so I will go and do things just for the joy of doing them not necessarily to write about them yeah well I mean you can tell even in your writing, when I'm, I imagine I've read some of what you were referring to just now that ended up just you're working, working, working. You mm-hmm. still clearly enjoyed it, which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you definitely, you have a cool gig. Yeah, to say I do. The least. I do. Uh, I have to remember that sometimes when I'm like, oh, but don't you know I'm still working when I'm lying in a hammock right. at some no, five-star sure. hotel? <laughs> I, I heard a great phrase from a friend of mine who got a job. She, she was not far out of college and she got this job and she was so excited about it. And she thought about it for a minute, just like a, a, like this moment of lucidity when she remembered, I've kind of disliked at some point every job I've ever had. Mm. She's like, you know, I would love to hate this job. <laughs> and yeah. that to me has been like my benchmark. Like, yeah, yeah. I would like to hate that job sometime because I've had many jobs and eventually disliked all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just part of the part of the cake. Yeah. And it's not that you dislike it to the point where you just want to quit, but like there's aspects of it. You're like, ah, oh, shit. I am just working here. You know? Yeah. I no think, matter how good it is. I still. think it, you just have to remember that sometimes because when everything does become work, you don't actually take any time off. Um, and so you end up kind of essentially working constantly and actually you just need to take time off where your brain isn't trying to think of a story or 
trying to yeah like see if you can interview somebody while you're out for dinner um so I think and I that's been really important to me to just kind of find that balance again and also to step back and go what are the things that I'm really interested rather than what I think people want to read necessarily um obviously there's the two go together but sometimes you can get caught up in what's out there already and just kind of following that and writing more kind of service pieces which are great um but i like to delve deeper sometimes into the culture yeah it's obvious <laughs> <laughs> and i like your lens it's really interesting that you came at it i mean i know that you're probably not always focused on religion and comparative <laughs> sort of studies now but you do write in a cool comparative way <laughs> i think I mean, whether even when you're not necessarily present as a as a personality in your piece uh-huh. there's like a cultural com- comparative not necessarily relativism but there's a cultural um comparison happening just because mm-hmm. you are you know, a, a white lady in mexico from yeah. another country writing about this thing that um is interesting it's it's um something that yeah i have to think about a lot um there's certain things that earlier on in my career I would have said yes to to write about, which now I probably wouldn't. Um, I think there's certain things that I can write about and can bring an interesting reflection on a country with an outsider's view. And then there's other things that I think is better that um, a Mexican writes. Um, and so I, it's, it can be a fine line sometimes. I remember when I was studying for my PhD and they talked a lot about how we had to be so aware of our own um, lens and our own bias and where we're coming from. And I think that's really helped me in my writing career now because I think there's an importance of being aware of that. And then there's looking at, okay, how far should, you know, should I write this? Should I not write this? How, you know, is it okay to have this opinion? Is it? I don't know. Like it's it's definitely a, a line that I walk constantly and think about a lot because I am, you know, a foreigner. But at the same time, I can see things, for example, in the language that a native speaker can't see. So I wrote a piece about the word aurita, which is like this basically means um, well, it can mean anything from it literally means like right now, but it can mean right now to like never to like maybe in 10 years it can be a way of saying no thank you without saying no and my uh, Mexican friend of mine she said oh you know I read that should I would never have thought of that piece because I just would never have just thought that 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 word would never have occurred to me that it's unusual because it's so part of just her life but it's got so many different contexts and within each context it means something different that you end up as a as a as a foreigner like as a second language learner i'd be like but but they're saying that ahorita oh does that mean now like i i gave the example of asking this ice cream seller if he had chocolate ice cream and he said oh ahorita and so i waited thinking well the ice cream's going to come and what he was saying was like yeah at some point like maybe tomorrow i'll have ice cream but i hadn't understood that so i'm waiting and I'm kind of feeling like it's rude if I leave now because I've already asked. And yeah, I was waiting for a long time. I asked again. He was like, see, sí, ahorita. And I was just like, okay, I don't know what to do. So all these things were playing out for me in terms of my British politeness as well. And, um, and yeah, like that's something that a Mexican 
native speaker, yeah, wouldn't probably wouldn't have thought of as even something to write about because it's just so normalized. And there's plenty of those in English that I would never see. Of course, of course. That, to me, is also an example of the type of not paying attention thing that I referenced earlier. Mm. It's like that guy in context clearly sees you waiting there for (laughs) ice cream that's clearly not coming. He knows. He could be like, "Uh, senorita. Uh, an otra tipo you know he could offer you a different kind of ice cream uh-huh. but you're just standing waiting he's not paying attention <laughs> I wouldn't have put that as paying attention I would have put that as him being like what's this weird what's she doing? doing yeah like as much as I was finding it strange he was like why is she just hanging out there like you know like not necessarily <laughs> right, a not paying right. attention thing but just an equally just confused at each other yeah. kind of thing you know and both of you are so polite that you just wait it out yeah and like my, my spanish wasn't amazing at that point so right, right. he probably you know be like well, what am i going to say to her <laughs> she might be waiting for a friend you know right right yeah i love that sort of thing <laughs> the, the lens is very important and i want to um I would talk about that for forever, but I don't want to keep you too, too long on mm-hmm. these microphones because there's more stuff I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, and I don't know which to talk to you about first because I do want to get to your, let's just stick with your writing okay. because um, you do have a book coming out. It's finished. Um, coming out is strong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I finished, yes, I finished it finally. Um, it's been a long process. It's in and the hands of a publisher? or No, her, yeah. it's in the hands of, um, well, it was in the hands of two people who were reading it for me, like my beta readers. Um, I've heard back from one and the other one's getting back to me this week. Um, and so it's, then we'll need some re-edits based on their um, ideas. And then I'll be on the search for an agent. Um, yeah, it's taken a long, long time. It's taken a lot of toing and froing in my mind about whether I should write it, whether I shouldn't. Um, all this stuff again about the lens, etc. As, as you can see, it's a, like a constant um, thing that I'm questioning all the time. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping to get an agent. My ideal is to be a novelist. Um, what, what's the premise more time. of this one? Um, so it's set in the the Lacandon jungle in the 1950s when missionaries arrive, and it's basically um, the story of what happens and that that sort of how things change at that time, how they were, how things change through the eyes of um, a in Lacandon girl and through the eyes of the missionary. So this is where my my challenge is: is whether I can write through the eyes of a Lacandon. Is with fictitious characters or people from history? Yeah, so it's fictitious. It's based on the historical fact that missionaries arrived in that part of the Lacandon jungle in the 1950s. But pretty much everything else is fiction, but based on facts around how people would have lived and certain ideas around gods and around ideas around cosmology, etc., so obviously the religious studies. Yeah, you sound ideally, ideally suited uh, in temperament and in sensitivity and a base of knowledge and interest to be the person writing the book. Just from my having not seen. I it, hope so. I, don't I know hope the so. Title. title. <laughs> um, right now it's called "Between the Blossoms of the Saber Tree." That's great. Because the saber tree blossoms around every seven to ten years, so it's about what happened between that those times. Wow, I'm not sure what's going on in my building. Some it's kind right. of construction work. It's all right. I love the title. Yeah. Any, I, I like anything that's in between one thing and another. Okay. That's always nice for me. I have a weird obsession with trees, 
Um, and so that's playing out and actually I've had ideas for like other novels that might involve trees so it might just be a <laughs> continuous like um, I don't know um, series of novels about trees yeah we just read the over story <laughs> oh that no oh, is that about a tree roundabout way yes <laughs> okay. multiple trees There's, the over story refers to you know the, the bits of trees over story under story that sort of mm, thing oh. uh, but it's also an enormous story involving lots of people and it's a fiction and it's beautiful and sad and all these things and never resolves but it's totally resolved sorry okay. uh, sounds uh, fascinating oh and the other guy that I was referencing earlier mm-hmm. my sweet wife pulled it up <laughs> Daniel Everett was okay. the writer so if you guys want to look up Daniel Everett I think it was Language, the Cultural Tool or something like that. Okay. Fascinating, fascinating book. I'll have a look. Uh, So your book is soon to be shopping for a publisher. So if anybody out there is interested. Yeah, so if anybody wants it. Yeah, please send us (laughs) a note. Or shopping for an agent. Send us a note. Yeah. Um, Before we get off here, I I do want to talk to you specifically about about Mexico and... um, people's perception of it which mm-hmm. i think your blog does a really good job of trying to address that um like again back to your your use of the idea of a lens mm-hmm. you know, what is in your lens i don't know that necessarily you're you're addressing what's in people's lens but the the place that they are maybe judging unconsciously or accepting the judgment of from either their state department mm-hmm. or their country um uh, i'll give the example um we recently met a couple people from Great Britain who've mm-hmm. been all over the world in Africa. I mean, they've traveled in their vehicle all through South Central uh, America into uh, into Mexico. The Tucks are their names. They've been guests on this podcast, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, we were talking about how the U.S. State Department. If you look at their travel advisory for Mexico, it is multicolored, mostly red language yeah. very strong against traveling here because it's so dangerous mm-hmm. and um, you know you have to take in some of that into consideration there are dangers in being alive in the planet earth it's real and mm-hmm. there are certainly dangers in Mexico that are exist yeah um, when you look at the exact I don't know what the equivalent of the State Department is in Great Britain uh, I don't. It doesn't matter. Not sure. It doesn't matter. They have <laughs> an advisory, maybe. Maybe they have a website with mm-hmm. a map that is. I mean, the same map as the U.S. map. Yeah. Same country. Uh, theirs isn't completely green, mm-hmm. which means you can travel through all these zones. There are little addendums like, "Hey, be careful with pickpockets here. Watch out for this scam here." It's there's. It's not like it's a rose tinted, you know, mm-hmm. glasses. Everything's fine. But those two things are very interesting to compare because the the, um, the UK has no interest in saying that Mexico is dangerous because the UK doesn't need to build a border wall mm-hmm. with Mexico. There's no vested interest in say, saying, for instance, that you shouldn't travel there. Yeah. You know, whereas in the uh, United States, and I'm not saying it just started in 2016, we've had travel advisories against Mexico, but it seems like there are vested interests in saying that it's dangerous and mm-hmm. to and to beware and to otherize the place and the people who might come from there mm-hmm. so uh if you wouldn't mind talking about maybe your experience here with that sort of mm-hmm. thing and your your particular lens of what mexico is like yeah so going back to the beginning of your question i i started the blog because i was seeing only really negative um press coming out of mexico and i had been living here and had seen 
something different to that. And I was actually out of the country. I had, I'd had to go back to the UK for some family things. And I was actually, again, in Australia with my sister. And I, I heard that there was going to be a radio show about Mexico. And I was excited. And then I heard that it was just a Mexico show about the drug war in Mexico. And I just thought, this is just so sad. I felt like a sort of physical ache of, in my heart around like how Mexico is portrayed. And... One of my favorite authors is called um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. She's a Nigerian author, and she talks about the danger of a single story. And obviously, Nigeria and different African countries also have sort of single story. I mean, Africa gets talked about as if it's a country um, with a single story. Um, and I thought, yeah, this is, this is so true. Like, I, there's no single story about Mexico. So I'm going to write the other stories and I'm going to write the positive I've always been a very optimistic person and kind of a bit rose tinted anyway so I was like great I can you know there's all these things I love about this place so that's how that started and people started to really respond to that and my favorite readers are Mexicans who live abroad who are like oh my god my country and I never get to read anything nice you know like it's all negative and it's changed a lot and now I actually don't write on the blog that much because I'm generally doing other um, you know journalistic writing but I, I've seen that change a lot and the desire for Mexico pieces from um, UK and US publications is quite big you know it's quite a popular place um, in terms of the difference in portrayal yeah I, I've heard from some people that they believe it's also due to the desire that people remain tourists in their own country in the US so that there's so much to see in the US and there's a, a desire for the money tourism money to stay in the US that it also is useful to portray Mexico as incredibly bad and dangerous so that people decide not to um, do that trip over the border um, I don't know if that's true or not and I think there are always political motives behind these things um, it does seem to play into the political motive of the US right now to portray Mexico as incredibly dangerous um, I mean it's fascinating I don't know if you saw that Amnesty International just did a um, basically a similar version of this saying don't go to the US because of gun violence um, and so you know when you look at it like that there's just all these comparisons or like um, distinctions you can make I guess around what's going on in each country I think it's also really dangerous to portray Mexico as incredibly safe because stuff does happen here. There's a very, very complex issue around violence here. It generally doesn't affect tourists. I think it's like 1% or something of violent crime here is towards tourists. I, I, I don't know that for certain, but when I wrote about it a few years ago, that was what was coming up as the number. Um, but you have to be careful, especially if you're driving around the country to know where to go, um, etc. Um, and to just be wise. And I think that's the same in anywhere you're going. You know, you just need to check and really be aware because there are certain parts of Mexico where I would say probably don't drive there at night or probably don't drive there alone or, you know, those kind of things. Or parts of Mexico City where I would say don't go at night or if you're going to go there, just beware that that's an area where there's a lot of um, petty crime and just be careful with your belongings or, you know, whatever it is. And I think, um, I think that awareness is important because I've seen some people who go to the other extreme would be like, oh, the only danger in Mexico is sitting under a palm tree and a coconut falling on your head or something. And it's like, 
well that's also not true you know like it's a it's a country with complex um with a complex situation where there are i mean i feel incredibly safe in mexico city and in many ways i feel safer day to day in mexico city than i did in oaxaca because there's more people and for me when there's loads of people i feel safe because i grew up in london for other people when there's loads of people they feel really unsafe so it's all about your own perceptions as well um i yeah i think the uk and mexico there's just there's nothing there wouldn't be anything political for the uk to gain from um you know saying expressing um uh, in the foreign I, i don't know what it's called actually the foreign advisory i don't know but um you know in saying that mexico is unsafe because yeah there's there's just there's no there's just no history there yeah. really well i i love that um the the need to not have a single story mm. for any anything because yeah. that's the thing i i feel like particularly from my culture the uh, art of nuance is dying mm-hmm. it is it is literally dying yeah. in this moment it's to have a nuanced position on something is tricky because if you say anything that's untoward that's your position and that's all people know mm-hmm. even though you may be saying 15 additional things to that one thing that people find objectionable that's your position you're wrong you're done mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate and that's the same thing that happens in a narrative about a country being dangerous Absolutely. or super safe or whatever it is there there's so many things to say about mexico mm-hmm. never mind your safety concerns yeah put that aside for a moment the rest of the story is super duper interesting mm-hmm. at every turn there's some sort of fascinating thing that i don't understand that someone somewhere can explain to me if i just have the opportunity to ask them yeah and if i'm afraid of it being strictly a drug infested kidnapping rapey sort of place mm-hmm. i won't take the time to go ask anybody or feel comfortable doing it no and, yeah. and conversely if i'm just you know rose colored glasses everything's fine you're going to you're going to run into problems yeah so. i think it's interesting that i often um get asked you know is do you feel safe there is it safe there and i think that's kind of almost the most boring question you could ask me about what my life is like here in many ways you know because it's just like if somebody said oh i live in i don't know china my first question wouldn't be like is it safe there it would be like oh my god tell me about what that's like every day you know how did you learn the language or can you speak the you know and so in a way it's almost like yeah it's a, it's the most it's an important part of the story but it's kind of one of the most boring especially when um that's sort of the the only thing that people want to know if if you walked into a restaurant you wouldn't ask the chef hey is this food going to give me diarrhea <laughs> that's insulting you know what i mean like you you would look around and say okay there's a sink there's a you know you you can yeah. infer by using your eyes and your brain yeah. first to mm-hmm. yeah just to go in and immediately ask what's the worst thing that could happen to me here what's yeah. the worst what are you worried about here it's a weirdly insulting question yeah. that that's not a good way to make friends and i know like <laughs> you know we're we are uh we have i guess we're unburdened by pay mm-hmm. <laughs> in this deal we can go around and just make friends and so we don't want to ask necessarily the insulting questions mm-hmm. we just want to become friends with the people that we meet you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, i think that's good to remember and and if you're reading a story or looking for information about a place mm-hmm. i mean think of it as a place full of potential friends yeah 
I think that's a good lens for anybody. Like, if, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, in any group of people that you're going to meet, there are going to be some of them who are not your favorite character. Yeah. And some of them may, may be dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally fine if you're going to a place to be like, hey, you know, how cautious do I need to be sure. visiting this market or that market? I think that's wise. Um, yeah, I just think when it's the only question, it's like, well... I mean, I could tell you all the things you can buy in that market or that you should definitely try this street food stall or, yeah, you yeah. know, this fruit or whatever. Yeah, you're just going to go there and be safe? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not very fun. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm safe. I'm here in Mexico and I'm safe. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Anywhere. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for so sharing welcome. your story. Um, I'm going to put up links on our website, but do you want to um, tell people your website? Um, it, well, it's susannarig.com, but that's tricky to spell. So um, it's S-U-S-A-N-N-A-H-R-I-G-G.com. But it's maybe easier just to follow the link. <laughs> yeah, go to the link. Uh, check out her blog. It is... Oh, that's uh, MexicoRetold.com. Yeah, I, and, and you should definitely get to work on writing more of that. I know you've been busy. <laughs> been busy writing your books, been busy getting paid. But that blog is really, I, I like it. Okay, I like I will. it. So, um, and people can also, my, all my social media is Mexico Retold. So Facebook, which I don't use as much these days, but Instagram I use all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Twitter sometimes. <laughs> and before we sign off, is there somewhere, if if someone has just like, they want to go to Mexico mm-hmm. and they want to ask a travel writer, hey, what should I do in Mexico? What would you suggest to that person? Oh, gosh, it's so hard because I don't know them. Yeah, don't call me. Yeah. Don't send me a blank email. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, definitely ask a travel advisor. Um, yes. If there's one place where I want to go, uh, oh, it really, really depends. My favorite state is Chiapas. Chiapas. To visit. Okay. Yeah. We've not been in the, much of Chiapas yet. It's great to drive around. Yeah. Although you be aware for roadblocks and stuff because sometimes there's like some land issues, but um, oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's where we're going next, right? San Cristobal. Mm, I'll give yeah. you all the great. tips. Great. <laughs> well, thank you, Susanna. We'll, uh, we'll sign off. Then. Thank you so much.
Thank you. 